Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Before we turn to your essential political analysis for this week, I want to tell you about our wonderful partners at The Resident, where all rooms are designed to combine pure comfort with quintessential British style and design. Whether you're escaping to London for a romantic break or visiting the city with friends and family, there's no better place to stay in the heart of the neighbourhood. Without The Resident, you might not get to experience London and... Without The Resident, we wouldn't be here on Whitehall Sources. Whitehall Sources, your essential, essential politics podcast, is brought to you in association with The Resident. Thank you, Prime Minister. Chris Mason, BBC News. If by the time of the next general election you haven't stopped the boats, will you have failed? Thanks, Chris. So, look, I... I wouldn't be standing here if I didn't think that I could deliver on this promise. At the beginning of the year, I stood up in front of the British people, made five promises, and one of them was to stop the boats. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. Lovely to be with you. It is Thursday the 9th of March. I'm Callum MacDonald. Also here, Kirsty Buchanan, who used to be a special advisor to the Prime Minister, Theresa May. Hello, Kirsty. And also here as well, Frankie Leach, fresh from local democracy and serving the people, and uh, <laughs> for, formerly, square mile. formerly an advisor to Jeremy Corbyn when he was Labour leader. Hello, Frankie. Hello. Are you well after all your democratising this morning? I am. We actually, we usually do it in the afternoon, but this morning we were dragged off to Guildhall to get business done quickly because they're all off to the palace as part of... <laughs> King Charles's coronation, and as prize to all of us, I my name for some reason was not picked out of the hat to be part of the, a palace delegation. A, a big surprise, I'm sure, for all of the listeners. Corbynistas are Republican. Anyway, we won't do that. Uh, it's lovely to. It's lovely. <laughs> it's lovely. I am to- actually a Republican, but we can get into that another time. Well, let's do that on another podcast, shall we? Uh, good. It's lovely to have you both here as usual. Um, I actually saw Kirsty yesterday, which was very nice. I, I wandered into your very fancy central London office, Kirsty, for a, for a sandwich and a chat. Stonehaven, That's global right. consultancy firm. Yes. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much for one the plug and to uh, yeah. Thank you for coming in. So Callum dispensed his wisdom to the media team about. Uh, how he came to be the radio superstar that he is today. Gosh, blagging it. Thank you for being here. Uh, Kirsty and Frankie are here every week. We're here every week to analyse today's politics based on their experiences, living and breathing it. And today, 
joining the wolf pack uh, joining us for uh, for this episode is peter cardwell uh, currently political editor of talk radio hello peter Hi, Carl. How are you doing? Yes, I'm good, thank you. I'm good. Um, I say currently because, uh, while we love your political expertise, of course we do, uh, tell us about your advising CV. Bring us up to speed. Oh, um, well, I was special advisor to four cabinet ministers in four different departments uh, over a period of about three and a half years, and it was all going wonderfully well until I was sacked by Dominic Cummings. <laughs> right. Uh, was oh. that... How, what sort of an experience was that? Was that... Um... Well, I was called into an office. I was told uh, the Prime Minister no longer has uh, confidence in your ability to do your job, and then I was sent on my merry way through the black gates and uh, thenceforth to unemployment. <laughs> so uh, it, was, it was fairly straightforward. Okay. He seems like a man who cuts to the chase. Um, so there we are. It's great to have you, Peter. It's lovely to have you here. Uh, thank you very much for being here. Of course, you can get in touch as well. Be part of the podcast. Email us anytime. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. Uh, you can add your comments and your analysis. Today, we're really focusing on immigration. Um, it's It's been quite a, quite a week for immigration. The government's presented... Well, it's Bill, it's plan, really, for what it wants to do, particularly, of course, for illegal migration. There's some really interesting um, language around this, as ever. Some really interesting polling as well. Let me just borrow this from political, just by way of context. Asked to choose three challenges ministers should prioritise, 66% of 2019 Tory voters said the cost of living, 41% said illegal migration routes, routes such as small boats, 37% said NHS waiting lists for operations, and 25% said ambulance and A&E wait times. So among Tory voters, Kirsty, first of all, this is... Well, the second priority, actually. So Rishi Sunak's tapping into tapping into what is a, a fundamental and core issue among Conservative voters. Yeah, and I think, actually, before we get into the policy itself and the nuts and bolts of that, I think we need to separate out the politics of this from the policy because I think there's two things going on here. Um, you know, and, and this is the most important thing. Now, the Twitterati will get their collective smelling thoughts out about the policy itself. Uh, but the reality is, is that immigration has can consistently remained in the top three uh, uh, in public attitude surveys for quite some time. And that's particularly the case in kind of red wall seats that obviously Rishi needs to hold on to uh, if he's going to secure victory at the next election. And actually what we're seeing here is almost like a rerun of what we saw in the run up to uh, the Brexit referendum, we've got um, uh, a strain on public services and a time of austerity then and, you know, cost of living crisis now. You know, people reading every day in the newspapers about, you know, tens of thousands of small boats coming over. Last year was a record 45,000 small boats came over. And they sit there and they read these stories day in, day out, and they worry about the pressure that these people are going to put on housing which is already strained in this country the nhs that's already strained or you know over full class sizes and so the conservatives are using this as a wedge issue to drive between themselves and labor this is uh, immigration as culture war if you like so they can turn around and you know the run to the election and say look we wanted to protect our borders we wanted to stop these small boats from coming and Labour voted against it. So uh, now Labour can call this a gimmick and a con and all that kind of stuff, but that's the core message that they will drum between now and then. So if you're going to fight this as a culture war issue, what we've got on one side 
is what they would call, the right would call, the virtue signaling of the left, the kind of moral grandstanding about the policy per se. And on the right, you've got what I would call value signaling by the Conservatives, which is them saying to the public who consistently say illegal immigration is an issue for them, we understand your concerns, we hear you, and we share your concerns, and that is why we have chosen to act in a tough way that we have. Are those two things, before we bring in Frankie and Peter, virtue signalling versus value signalling, in terms of where you place them together, are they at opposite ends of a, an extreme and there's something in the middle, or how do they kind of relate to each other, would you say? Well, um, I mean, can I uh, just segue very, very quickly into hate moral foundation theory? Uh, the very short-form version of hate moral foundation theory is that all human behaviour and all human values can be pretty much carved into six uh, separate areas. I mean, I'd, I'd encourage you all to read the book. It's fascinating, but it's around care, uh, you know, safety and protection, fairness, all these, all these value concepts, right? And uh, before the lockdown hit, um, I, I, was, I was in the foothills of doing a documentary, which I had loosely called why the left keep losing. Um, and the essence of this is that, you know, the really, really short-form version of it, spoiler alert time, is that the Conservatives, in the policies that they put out and the language they put out, speak to a wider set of those, you know, moral foundation values than the Labour Party do, where the Labour Party concentrates fundamentally on caring and fairness as the two values, but there's a much broader suite in conservative messaging. So so that's kind of the, the, the sort of philosophical underpinning to it. Um, and then, of course, you know, you're always going to have, uh, you know, what I'd call the kind of rights useful idiots wading into this debate with kind of classic regularity. We've got Gary Lineker saying, oh, this is like, you know, the third row Weimar Republic, Nazi Germany. You know, I mean, leaving aside how unbelievably offensive that is to the Jewish community. Absolutely. Um, uh, you know, this is the sort of language and the sort of problems that we had again in the run-up to Brexit. Mm. Every time people express concerns about immigration, which became a key issue during the Brexit debate, there was some on the left, not all by any means, but some on the left that would say, you're racist, you're fascist, etc., etc., and try to shut down that debate, which only, you know, hardens the sense that some within the left don't share the values that the vast majority of people in this country have. Let us open the floor. That's really interesting. All of that. Virtue signaling, value signaling, values versus virtue, all of that. Your thoughts on that welcome, of course. Peter, you were you were jumping in there um with an absolutely and it's interesting, isn't it, what Kirsty's done there is separate the politics from the policy okay. of, of illegal migration. What would you say on this virtue signaling, value signaling and and where the Conservatives, where Rishi Sunak is kind of creeping in, I suppose, between the two? Well, I agree with absolutely every word that Kirsty has said. And if you've ever worked with Kirsty as I have, that's generally the good approach to have. <laughs> um, in terms of, um, I think there's more to the politics, though, as well, because when this inevitably goes wrong, I think it is a probably fairly unworkable policy. I think immigration has never really worked in this country since when Rush, uh, since uh, in the last 50 or 60 years. And I don't know how the boats are going to be stopped. And if the boats are stopped, uh, there'll be another way, because what has happened over the last 10 or 15 years is that uh, the Home Office has, has uh, innovated, and then the people smugglers have innovated, and, and this just keeps going on ad infinitum, so there'll be something new. But in terms of the politics, it is very handy for Rishi Sunak to be able to say, ooh, that horrible uh, European Court of Human Rights uh, has really stopped us doing this. 
oh, we're really trying, but actually all these lefty lawyers like Keir Sarmer are putting uh, so many problems in our way, the House of Lords, uh, I, whoever else is against this, essentially, and actually couching it, as Kirsty correctly said, in the language of fairness. He's done this a number of times, and the culture war issue essentially, just repeating the point that Kirsty said, but mm -hmm. essentially you you can't have these things like a doctor's appointment, a dentist appointment, um, proper public services, smaller class sizes, because these immigrants are coming and taking that away from you. And that is a very, very powerful message that will resonate with a lot of people, even though... Uh, for for many in many senses, it's not true. There's a really interesting bit, and Frank, you do come in on this at this point. There's a really interesting bit in some of this polling as well that's reported by Political Today that I alluded to before. Uh, so illegal migration has become a top four issue among voters, as we said, rising to top two among those who backed the Tories in the last election. But what it seems to show is that people really are not that worried about legal migration. So there's even within wow. coming people coming <laughs> to the UK, there's a kind of distinction to to draw on there. Frankie, what are you thinking? Well, instead of getting into a big emotional conversation with the two of you, Peter and Kirsty, about why I think everything you've just said is wrong and is borderline, I wouldn't use the term racist, but I think it fans the flames of extremism, put it that way. Um, what I will say is that it's important to talk about legal terminology here, which is firstly, illegal immigration, when we're talking about this bill, is actually the wrong terminology. Because what we're talking about here is asylum seekers. Now, just to be clear, at the moment, under current law, there is no thing as an illegal asylum seeker. It's impossible to be an illegal asylum seeker because part of the Refugee Convention decrees that you can seek asylum wherever you see fit if you have a reason to be escaping your home country. Now, what this bill is talking about is for people who arrive here currently, the decision is then taken about whether they believe their asylum claim to be true. And then that's when people become refugees in this country. Immigration is a different thing. Immigration is about economic migrants. This is about people coming to the UK uh, to live here. Nothing to do with seeking asylum, not because they're fleeing persecution. They're perhaps looking for a job or they're marrying someone. It's a totally different thing. So we come to the matter of illegal boats and illegal, you know, uh, crossings. There is currently no way, apart from if you're from Hong Kong uh, or if you're previously from Syria or you're from Afghanistan, to be able, and of course Ukraine, to be able to seek asylum in this country, which means there is no route for you to take. So they are all illegal in the way that the gov government currently sees that. So what this government is essentially saying is, is that they no longer want to take part in the asylum seeking, you know, responsibilities of international countries, which is that every country has a responsibility to take in asylum seekers. I agree with Kirsty in the sense that this has become a culture war issue. And, you know, I think it's important to remember, you know, not even a matter of weeks ago, there was a group of extremists outside an asylum seeking hotel. And again, to point out, these hotels are not what you would consider to be a four star hotel like the Ritz. It's very basic accommodation whilst people await their claim hearings on asylum cases. Um, you know, setting fire to police vans, mm. um, you know, terrorising the people inside. Now, what I worry about is that this bill is basing, you know, the people who have concerns about immigration. It's very quickly able to seep over into what happened at Nosey from people who say they have concerns about immigration. And what I would say, as I said on the podcast previously, that if you keep telling people as a government, that the reason why public services are being degraded and, you know, you can't afford a house or there's not enough houses available is because we've got loads of illegal immigration. I mean, firstly, it's not the case. What we've got a problem with 
is, you know, unoccupied houses that are being used as assets rather than homes for people. I mean, if you look at the availability of homes across London, we've got far more empty homes than we probably have migrants wanting to get in them. Uh, and that's an issue of the government. It's not because of illegal immigration. But if you keep telling people, beating that message down, immigration is to blame, then of course, in a focus group, people are going to say, I feel like immigration is a problem. I'm not denying the fact that clearly we have a public who are concerned about immigration. But that doesn't mean that we should call a spade a spade, which is that we point out that this policy is really playing into dangerous rhetoric about people who are fleeing persecution, putting them in terminology like invasion. I mean, I think Gary Lineker is right to compare that to the language that people use about groups of people when they are trying to draw a line between us and them. And I think it's upsetting to me to see people kind of prophesize about the policy of this when for me it is just a fundamental issue of morals about what is right and what is decent. And to call this out is that's wrong. I get that. I totally get that. I hear you. Absolutely. And I think what what is interesting is how how it becomes and has become such a pertinent issue and has stayed there. So as we're saying, you know, by by kind of using that polling, I, I'm highlighting that people, you know, it is a matter of concern for people. No, uh, of course. And this is what I mean is that it concerns me that the, the polling sure. exists. Yeah, no, I get you. I get you. I get all of that. And actually just on that, just, and you know, we've kind of got into the policy there and we'll, we'll, we'll keep looping back to that, I'm sure. Peter, something you said was interesting about Windrush and actually just how the, the sort of longevity of the issue of immigration, Kirsty mentioned Brexit as well. This is something that has bubbled for so long and as you highlighted, has actually been an issue that governments have wrestled with for so long. <clears throat> I mean, for how long? How far back can we trace this as, a, as an issue that governments are wrestling with? Well, really, as far back as mass immigration has been to this country, I was in the Home Office for a glittering career of four weeks. Um, I was still finding the lose when I got a WhatsApp from Amber Rudd, who was then the the um, Home Secretary alongside the other special advisors I was working on, saying, you know, Peter seems to be settling in well. By the way, could someone look into this Windrush thing? I think it might be a bit problematic. Um, and literally three weeks later, we were all out the door because, as everybody on this podcast knows, you are uh, tied to the minister that you work for. If they get sacked, you get sacked. So that's what happened, even though I had absolutely no role in Windrush whatsoever. But what was interesting was how long that policy had been going on, how much it didn't work, um, and how clear and how absolutely crystal clear it was that there was absolutely no issue and shouldn't have been any issue with uh, people from the Windrush generation being in the country. They've uh, obviously contributed a huge amount over many generations. And that was a really, really clear-cut, mm. completely ambiguity-free issue that was a complete uh, screw up by uh, successive governments, but not least the, the government I was part of, and not, not taking anything away from that at all, but there were definitely successive governments that screwed that one up. So I think that that was a real lesson in terms of how even something that's bubbling along and you think is fine can actually for a number of years have been in serious, serious trouble. And the thing is, in government, you, you can be told on any given day, and it's probably much worse in Downing Street where Kirsty worked, that there are 10 issues that could become massive and nine of them you never hear of again and one of them can dominate the whole day or even the whole week or even longer. And that was the case with Windrush. It just became it became a resigning issue for the Home Secretary, which was um, a pretty astonishing thing to live through. I was a, a, barely a spectator in that, but I saw the other uh, three special advisors that I was working on working night and day. I remember one particular uh, time when the immigration spad, really good guy actually, went out to have a haircut because his hair was just 
very, very long. And they came back and one of the private secretaries just bawled them out and said, you know, how dare you leave for half an hour? You know, this is, there's so much to do here. Um, and I think, I think the, the truth was probably somewhere in the middle, but it was, they were working, you know, 18, 19 hour days on that particular issue to try and get it sorted and it was unsalvageable. Mm. Um, and I think it just is a lesson really for how, and I, I think there are many members of the Windrush generation who still feel that there are problems with that system and there are still things that could be done uh, by the government to, 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 try to try to help in some way. But immigration is just one of those issues that I think has always been a big issue. We remember Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech, and that was racist. I don't think anything Kirsty and I have said is racist, but certainly that was racist. And certainly you can have, I think we need to get better in this country at having a conversation for saying, I'm concerned about something like immigration. Uh, I don't want it to have a negative impact on my life, but I'm still compassionate towards people who come here. And there's, there's that sort of middle ground. And I think if you do set it up as a culture war, if you do set it up as an either or situation and the left against right, well, that may yield benefits politically. And actually, if you look at, I was chatting to Joe Twyman, the guy who runs Delta Pool, who I'm sure all of us know, um, the other day, and he was saying that actually for the 2019 voters, many of whom lent their vote to the Conservatives for the first time, this is actually a much bigger issue, even than it is for Conservative voters overall. So Rishi Sunak is obviously thinking, how on earth can I get these people back? Uh, how can I persuade them to vote for us in 2024? And this is one of the issues that can help. But also, I think that's the politics. But the yeah. fundamental thing is, it does need to be sorted out in some way. You know, whether whether people like it or not, the system is not working at the moment. Yeah. I remember hearing somebody once say as well on that, and Frankie, we'll get to you just in a sec. I'm just going to say that somebody once said, there is a there is a great cruelty in a system that exists but doesn't work properly. Yeah. But actually that in yeah. itself is, is a cruelty. Um, um, let's get Frankie in, and then Kirsty, I want to come back to you on just sort of tying policy and politics together. But um, Frankie, what in terms of this being a, a, an issue of longevity, do you feel like it the left versus right is there, a, is there an awareness that that is old-fashioned and there needs to be some sort of coalescing around what is the answer here? Yeah, I think the thing that makes me sad about this is it will be boiled down to kind of the, a left versus right issue. And I think there are people on the right who don't like this policy and maybe there are people on the left who do. I don't think it's as clear-cut yeah. as that. I think for me, look, there's two things here. The first is that legally this policy is completely unworkable. The EU have said today pretty much that they're not going to be able to provide... Um, places to be the safe third country to deport these asylum seekers to. And I think Rishi Sunak was really banking on the EU, kind of backing him on this. What I think, as Peter said, and I, I agree with him on this, is that this is all just posturing to leave the European Court of Human Rights. They will exactly, as you said, Peter, use it as a way to say, you know, pesky ECHR meddling again, it's time for us to leave. And I think, you know, successive governments have been trying to get out of the EC, ECHR for, for a very long time. Um, in terms of it being a left and right issue, I mean, it's it's really difficult. And I think if you look at the Labour Party's position on this, they're not taking what many would consider to be kind of the, the left-wing route, as much as I think Rishi Sunak is kind of hoping that they do. I mean, Yvette Cooper um, was condemning uh, Gary Lineker's comments the other day on LBC News, uh, was saying that she didn't agree with him. And I think what they've said is that this policy is unworkable, but they kind of agree stopping small boats. So that's kind of, it's not really a left or right issue. Yeah. The thing that I would say is that what this concerns me, this policy could result in just mass detention, mass detention of asylum seekers who get to the UK. They're not going to be put off by this policy because, you know, we've seen, you have a look at policies and research around this, you know, it doesn't matter how stringent the laws are, people will still flee and they'll still come. Uh, my concern is, is that we don't have 
a sort of extradition agreement with EU countries or if this Rwanda policy doesn't come off the ground. And when I say concern, it's not because I want it to. Mm. Um, we'll just have mass attention of asylum seekers in the UK, which is extremely expensive. It's extremely concerning. Detention centres were always in the news for the terrible conditions that people were living in. Um, so that will become another element of the culture war in itself. So this policy doesn't do anything, actually, I think, to you know, help people who have concerns about immigration. I think it's just using them and playing with them as political football as part of this wider culture war point. Stay with us on Whitehall Sources, because in the next few minutes, we'll consider whether this policy will ever actually have any real-life impact on the people it's supposed to target, or whether it is all just politics. This is Whitehall Sources. Make sure you follow and subscribe. We'll be right back. Oh, hello. Well, you thought you'd got rid of me, didn't you? Well, here I am in the break as well. You are welcome. Here at Whitehall Sources, we are always enthusiastic about rigorous journalism. So, we have been tapping up our very special sources to find out more about The Resident, which says it has excellent rooms in exceptional locations, providing heartfelt hospitality. I'm pleased to say their story checks out, actually. Here's one of our sources, Bossman56, who says, Just spent three days at the resident Covent Garden. Room was excellent, so were the staff. The room and the hotel, clean and tidy. Staff were friendly and very efficient. We'll be going back soon. And in the interest of double sourcing, it's just what we have to do as rigorous journalists. How about this from Gufton, which I assume must be a codename. The best hotel I've stayed at in London. The customer service was unsurpassed from the moment I walked in the door. It actually all makes us very proud to be supported by The Resident on Whitehall Sources. And you can join The Resident online. Go to residenthotels.com. And if you all do that, they'll actually just be very pleased with us. So go to residenthotels.com. Thank you. One thing about this is, if it if it faces legal challenges, is it ever actually going to implement, is any of it ever actually going to be implemented, is it ever going to work? But also then, in the sort of zoomed out sense, if this has been such a long-term issue that is important to people, with a variety of views on it, one, is Rishi Sunak the one who's going to get a grip on it? And two, is this what getting a grip on it looks like? Something that's teed up for loads of legal challenges? Uh, I will tell you that if this policy ever, A, becomes law, or B, works, mm. in inverted commas, I will change my name to La La Moonchild. <laughs> I will give away all my possessions and I will go and live in a yurt in the South California desert, right? I mean, I just... I mean, I appreciate why people are upset about it, but I think they will just need to relax because there is no way in hell that this is legal and isn't going to be subjected to and tied up in the courts ad infinitum right past the next election. There's a, a, there's a couple of factual points around the policy issue here that I think are important to stress, right? Um, so uh, Frankie's 100% right. We only at the moment have safe and legal routes uh, specifically for Ukraine, Hong Kong and Afghanistan. There are a couple of other ways of getting in legally to this country, which is the UK resettlement scheme and family reunion visas. We don't, however, have safe and legal routes for uh, for people fleeing other places where we used to, and you would expect to now, places like Eritrea and Syria. It is curious to me that two or three weeks ago, the government basically 
uh, to clear a backlog. I mean, our backlog in asylum is like 100,000 people. To help clear the backlog, it basically rubber-stamped uh, all the kind of Eritrea and Syrian applications because 95% of them uh, are accepted uh, anyway. Mm. So if two or three weeks ago you were accepting 95% and just like, rubber-stamping them, why on earth don't we have safe and legal routes for people coming from Syria or from Eritrea? And whilst the government has said, look, we will have more safe and legal routes, they've also said we won't do this until this small boats policy actually works. And so there you can see the kind of horns on the dilemma on it. But there is also another fundamental truth here. Um, I don't... Uh, there is nobody here that is from the start point, nobody from the start point that thinks left or right, that thinks that piling, you know, a group of desperate people onto shoddy, shonky, dodgy boats and uh, sailing them across the channel is a good thing. Let's not... These people aren't making some humanitarian mission here. These are criminal gangs dealing in human misery. So I think there is a fundamental point about, you know, we do need to, you know, we do need to do something. France is never going to accept a returns agreement. Uh, we have increased money for increased border controls, uh, but we are talking about 100 miles of coastline here. So something needs to be done. I don't, I don't dispute this. And by the way, this is a, you know, this, this issue about uh, people coming to uh, safe haven countries and then second migration, if you like, uh, is an issue that's being grappled right across Europe, by the way. This isn't peculiar to us. The EU uh, interior ministries are all meeting today to discuss this growing problem of people coming into, you know, South EU, you know, Southern EU countries like Italy, uh, some legally, some illegally, uh, irregular migration, and they call it, and then moving up to the sort of northern EU countries like Germany and mm. the Scandinavian countries and putting all the kinds of uh, strain and effort there. These are all safe haven countries. And there is a, you know, whether you are uh, you know, an economic migrant or whether you are a genuine asylum seeker, if you're getting on that boat to come from uh, France to Britain, you are coming from a safe haven country and you've made a choice other than, you know, coming to Britain because it's a safe haven country. You are coming here because you've probably got a support network here or you speak English, mm -hmm. etc. But the, the reality of this is until we have a returns agreement, which I don't see as ever having, frankly, because I don't see, I don't care how good the relationship is between Rishi Sunak and Emmanuel Macron, I don't ever see France, see France signing up to a returns agreement. I just don't know how you break this conundrum. But do, do you break it like this? No, I don't think you do. That's interesting. Peter, what do you think about that? It, just that, that question of, if this is something that's persisted for so long, is Rishi Sunak the one to, in, that, in those, that phrase, to break the conundrum? And is this the way to do it? It's an attempt. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think it's better to make an attempt uh, to stop. I think stopping the boats is a good idea for lots of reasons. I think it's a good, good idea for humanitarian reasons. I think it's a good idea for political reasons. I think it's a good idea for the country because there's got to be a better way. The immigration system has to be better than it is at the moment. Um, I think Kirsty's absolutely right. I think a lot of these international summits, certainly ones that I've been part of at various points, uh, are largely pointless. <laughs> and if something's not agreed, 
beforehand it's probably not going to happen. Um, I think that it is unlikely that all, all these... It, it also seems slightly to be putting the cart before the horse to say that, well, we've come up with this amazing policy and then all these third countries are suddenly magically going to agree to take all these returns of uh, people who've come over in small boats. I don't see that happening. Um, so I think I think it is unworkable, and I think Kirsty's absolutely right uh, in terms of being unworkable. But there just there needs to be a better system. It's an attempt. I'm, I'm glad that an attempt is being made mm. in some way, even though there will be people who will criticise this and say it's dreadful and not humanitarian. What's not humanitarian is uh, people coming across in, in small boats, some of them, uh, you know, w w some of them uh, falling into the sea and drowning and dying. That is horrendous. Yeah, well, there's no doubt about that, of course. Um, Frank, well, then just quickly, my question would be, if we're so concerned about people drowning in the English Channel, why not open some safe routes? This isn't about caring about those people. I mean, let's just call a spade a spade. This is what really gets on my nerves about this. It might be for you as an individual, but for the government, this is not about being concerned about people fleeing asylum or getting on those boats. It is about the political problem it represents. If we cared why about the humanitarian... Be why can I not Because be they're not open. So why haven't they opened safe routes then? I'll ask you the question. If, if it can be both, why not open safe routes? Well, we don't know if they're going to do that in the future. They haven't done it so far. You can't far. answer. There's no answer for it because they don't care. Genuinely, the way to stop people dying if they are coming to claim asylum is open a safe route. So what, what would your... It doesn't what, impact. What, OK, fair enough. Let's take that premise. How then would you not limit it at all? Would you just say, well, just take as many people as want to come to this country and, and can stay here and there's no problem? I think for me, it would be about opening schemes. So for instance, the Syria scheme worked really well, which was essentially allowing people to board planes with visas or at least approvals because they were coming over on a humanitarian scheme. That is a safe route. It's exactly what we did with Ukraine. I but, thought you had a fantastic point. example of how to do it right, which is essentially okay. see a country in crisis, put out the clarion call and say, if you want to flee persecution and find a safe place, you can come here and there, provide there, but there are routes. lots of places you can make the argument i'm not i'm not saying that was a bad system i'm not saying your idea is a bad one simply what i'm saying is if there are there are lots of places around the world where you could legitimately say there are problems for either everyone like places like syria afghanistan iraq at various points in the last 20 years or alternatively for groups of people where do you draw yeah. the line where do you say that we haven't we, we can't take any more people do you I ever don't draw think the line it's about whether for me, no, I think... You don't ever draw the line, honestly, you honestly, say... No I, think, no, I think answering the call of humanitarianism, there is no such line to be drawn. And I say this as somebody who works in the sector, who actually has knowledge about this, which is that when people put out a humanitarian call, it is the moral duty of everyone if they have the resources and capability to answer it. Now, I know this whole question is about, do we have the resources? Statistically, if we look at how many immigrants asylum seekers, whatever you want to call them, we take, compared to the rest of the EU, we are the smallest. We do not take anywhere near as many as France and as Germany. So for me, a compassionate humanitarian system that actually supports people doesn't make them get in boats because it's technically illegal to be able to come and claim asylum in the UK, even though it's not. It's about opening safe routes international cooperation, people working together to ensure there are safe places for people to go and conflict resolving, ending issues like global poverty, ensuring there aren't issues like global famine or at least famine in East Africa so that people don't feel like they have to flee, resolving issues in the country, increasing aid spending, decreasing 
defence spending because we are basically trying to ensure that where people live is a safe place, a place where they can earn, prosper, enjoy their family. The Eritrean guys that I work with look on the street like single men stood outside hotels, the kind of people that the son will complain about, that one of them that I work with married has three children, has a wife, misses his family terribly, never wanted to leave. He would have stayed. And this is what I mean. A good asylum system protects people in their time of need and then supports them to go home. And this is the concept that we're not talking about. It's just about being kind. Just to pick up, because it's really interesting to sort of try to dig into, if not this, then what, um, which is what we've done a bit of there, which is really helpful. Kirsty, I want to just pull back then into the polling that I mentioned, because there's a there's a bit of a cycle here to break. So again, based on what Frankie was saying earlier, if if government rhetoric fuels a public attitude towards migration, and then somebody was to propose a policy along the lines of what Frankie's just suggested, is that is that even possible? Because I'm I'm trying to understand what comes first. Is it public attitudes that have informed the policy? Is it rhetoric that, have, that has informed? public attitudes which has then informed the policy i'm trying do you know what do you see what i'm getting at is where in the cycle could you could you break in if at all uh, well look i think one thing that we can all ardently agree on is that uh, the current system is broken yeah. and isn't working and something needs to be done about it um is it driven by uh public well look i mean the politics of this clearly is driven by the public and uh, and, and, and where public attitudes are uh, on this issue. Um, uh, but the policy itself, look, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's one of those ideal world scenarios mm -hmm. again for me. I don't, like in an ideal world, I don't disagree with anything, Frankie says, but, you know, but Germany and France and the Scandinavian countries have got exactly the same dilemma that we've got in Britain at the moment, is that, you know, genuine refugees and, you know, illegal or irregular uh, migrants, whatever you want to call them, are coming in uh, to southern European countries, which are safe haven countries like Italy, and then moving up to northern Europe, right? And then some of them are coming from France over to our country. So we will not get an agreement with France. France and Germany and the Scandinavian countries will not get an agreement with Italy, etc., to, you know, to, to send people back to their original first safe haven country. That is actually, in terms of international law, what is supposed to happen. Mm. You are supposed to stay in the first safe haven country that you arrive at, right? Now, obviously, that just leads to secondary migration. Oh, Frankie's telling me that I'm wrong on, about Frankie. this. That isn't true. Um, what the government is currently proposing is, is precisely that, which is essentially to stop people at the first perceived safe country that they arrive in, in current refugee law... You don't have to stop at the first safe country that you find. And what I would say is, is think about it again in the context of the Ukraine war. Did we, when the Ukraine war kicked off, say, right, you all get to Poland and you stay there? No, nobody even considered that. It was just like, of course they might want to come to the UK and let's bring people in, let's welcome them. It's exactly the same process, but yet just on a factual point, there is no current legislation that says you have to stay in the first country that you arrive in, otherwise we wouldn't be in this situation. Okay, so so we have we have uh, safe and legal routes. I agree with Frankie. I think we need more of them. I'm particularly surprised that we don't have safe and legal routes at the moment for Eritrea and for Syria. That is a curiosity to me. Uh, I also take Peter Peter's point about look at any point 
there are, I think currently at the moment, there are 123 conflicts in the world at the moment. Mm. Um, you know, are we having safe and legal routes for 123 countries? And then if you look at the kind of numbers that we're talking about here, you know, Germany, uh, in terms of asylum applications last year, took 127,000. France was 96,000. Britain was 72,000. So we're not radically kind of far away from uh, fr from from where France is on this. And in terms of, you know, the Ukrainian scheme, we took 186,000 people from Ukraine, 144,000 from uh, Hong Kong, 12,000 uh, from Afghanistan. So we do provide, you know, a safe haven and a new home for hundreds and thousands of refugees every single year. So... Uh, it's just important. to say it's asylum seekers. So just specifically on the language, I'm just hammering this point because I, it's making me get really frustrated. These people are asylum seekers. They aren't just brought in as refugees because it's a whole different set of rights. So just quickly, just to troubleshoot, when you're an asylum seeker, you get to this country, you're not allowed to work. So you can't get a job. Mm. If you get refugee status, then you can get a job then you can apply to do things like university. So even the concept of who we give refugee status to and who we allow to come here to seek asylum is a different thing. But Kirsty, I'll let you finish, but I'm just, just on the technical points. It is actually a totally different thing. Okay. Um, so, yeah, look, I, 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 I think where I kind of ended up with this in terms of the pure policy of it, I think we need more safe legal routes. Uh, uh, I... I'm concerned about, you know, where you draw the line on that. Of course I am, because I could say there's 123 armed conflicts across the world at the moment. Um, but having said that, you know, uh, that, that doesn't, even if you had more safe and legal routes, mm. that doesn't solve the problem of thousands and thousands of thousands of people coming over every year on dangerous small boats across the channel. It doesn't solve that problem. Yeah. What solves that problem? Now, some of the people in there are uh, economic migrants. Some of them are uh, genuine asylum seekers, refugees. I'm now confused about what language I'm supposed to be using. Um, <laughs> I think you can uh, use both but, in different circumstances, is but, the point. But more, you know, two, three, four, five more safe and legal routes is not going to solve that problem. Mm. What solves that problem? Now, you've only got a handful of issues here. You massively, massively, massively increase um, uh, your 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 beach patrols, your French beach patrols. We've handed over £232 million in the last five or six years to, to France, but uh, to increase, they've, uh, you know, they've upticked their patrols by 40%. But that's 100 miles of coastline we're talking mm. about here. I was listening to a fisherman the other day on the radio, and he said, like, you know, in the last sort of three, four, five years, he said, you know, it's become almost a kind of daily occurrence to see a little boat bibbling past you while you're out in the channel, uh, with people in it, and he's had to go and rescue people before, and he's been asked by the border patrol to follow boats back sometimes because they haven't got enough staff to make sure that people, you know, arrive safely. You know, it is a it is a daily occurrence, and if France won't accept and sign up to an agreement with us to 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 take back returns, uh, you know, returning people that have come to this country uh, through this route then, you know, the Rwanda policy isn't going to work. I don't think, you know, I agree with Frankie, I don't think criminalising and incarcerating people um, and then sending them to I know not where, because if we haven't got Rwanda, then what have we got? Mm. At the cost of hundreds of millions of pounds to the taxpayer, yeah. as a 
you know, as a pure piece of policy, I don't think it's workable either. So we are still stuck in this intractable problem. But but which is why I come back to the point about let's separate the politics out from the policy on mm. this, because I think a lot of us, well, I think we we are all in agreement that this policy is is you know not going to survive the courts and is pretty unworkable. But there's politics at play out here, and that is kind of where the focus on this you know, attention should be, if you like, in the run-up to the election. Absolutely. Also, from a comms point as well, it's very helpful if your line is like, we would have gone away with it if it wasn't for those lefty lawyers. What better (laughs) way to have this policy, which sadly I can understand that lots of people in the UK want and will support, have it squashed down in the cause. It's very then easy to just say, well, you know, we would have been able to do it if it wasn't for all these lefty Lawyers. And, and, and Rishi Sunak just... is the scrappy do of the situation because he's so small and sort of feisty. <laughs> <laughs> scrappy do. Oh, damn, he's feisty. He does look a bit like scrappy do. <laughs> I think. Do you know? I think this discussion that we have had today is it demonstrates so much about one the difficulty here, two the different differing perspectives, three the the actual seeming impossibility to get a proper grip on these sorts of things, and four the politics that underpins any attempt to try to do anything at all. Stay with us on Whitehall Sources. We're going to be quizzing Peter Cardwell all about his days as a special advisor. That comes next. I think we should find out more about Peter Cardwell, a friend to us all, yeah. Um, yeah. a man of many talents, <laughs> a man who often joined us on the on Times Radio on the programme at an earthly o'clock um, before then having to um, go and uh, spend his time on other you know, radio stations in the same building that I'm sure you enjoy far less than Times Radio. <laughs> uh, when you think back to your advisor days, do you think of them fondly? I think that I always start yeah. with this question with former advisors. Oh, I do. I mean, it was an incredible privilege. It was really interesting. It was fascinating. And also, I don't think I ever came home from work and put my feet up on the sofa and said to my housemate, you know, um, that was a boring day. Yeah. It, was, it was always really, really interesting. Even It can be frustrating, it can be tiring, it can be very difficult, but also it's it's really brilliant. I mean, I was a journalist for 10 years beforehand. I'm now back in journalism, but I, I absolutely loved it. And it completely changed my perspective mm. on both people who work in politics and journalists. Listen and to you, it, feeding that revolving door theory. <laughs> why I know, I was going to say. But, but it, it, is, it is a sort of fascinating thing. And also you just meet these sort of incredible people from, from both sides of the aisle, actually. And, and bizarrely, uh, one thing I did, which I'm not sure too many people did, but maybe others did as well, but I always sort of reached out to my Labour kind of shadows and said, occasionally we'll have to work together and things, maybe we should just have a cup of tea together. Mm. And there were occasionally times where, you know, I remember the... Uh, one of the shadows of one of the one of the secretaries of state I had, you know, he had a family thing, and they said, "Can we just agree there'll be uh, nothing and nothing, no parliamentary business, kind of tomorrow or UQs or anything?" Because this this particular event, a funeral, I think, had to happen, and it was it was fine, it was done, and things like that. It can can kind of help, and you do make odd and sort of weird friendships, and you meet really interesting, charismatic, sort of um, brilliant people. I mean, even though. I still basically have some form of PTSD from working in CCHQ Gosh. on the 2017 election, yeah. which was just the most horrendous experience. Sorry about um, that. You know, I got... Um, <laughs> well, well, um, I, be, believe me, frankly, the Corbynists is one of the biggest problems for, for us in CCHQ. I was literally about to say that was the least of our problems. <laughs> yes, indeed. But, but through, that, I, through working on that election, I became friends with, you know, Kirsty Buchanan and uh, my greatest friend in politics. He's a former advisor called Amy Fisher. So, um, you know, you, you do you do meet these sort of brilliant people. 
Um, and also you're helping in a small way to, to, to run a G7 country. I mean, what's not to like? How do you reflect on days gone by? And this is perhaps one for all of you. This week, I noticed your brilliant piece in The Times today, by the way, on uh, being a special advisor, your amazing book, Secret Life of a Special Advisor as well. But how do you reflect on the past week where special advisors, and even before that, to be fair, you mentioned Dominic Cummings, where special advisors and those who are traditionally the cogs in the machine that we don't know that much about really get thrust into the limelight? And I say the last few days, I realise Simon Case is a civil servant, but he's somebody who's, who's um, floating around. Also, though, in the Hancock WhatsApps, there are names galore of special advisors in the communications um, between the health secretary at the time and those who were advising him, something you reflect on in the Times. I just wonder how you feel about that. Is, is, is that sort of pulling back the curtain in a way that is unhelpful in any way? Well, this is, this is the, the inherent conflict I have as sort of poacher turned gamekeeper turned poacher. <laughs> Um, in terms of the fact that, um, you know, they say sunlight is the best disinfectant, but at the same time, sometimes you do need... Let, 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 it's better if I don't talk about the specific WhatsApp things because they do involve some friends of mine, and Absolutely. I can't be objective on that. But on, on the general point, I would say that sometimes... And one thing you don't really appreciate, as a, uh, often I didn't anyway as a journalist, you think, oh, you know, there should be transparency everywhere, freedom of information, all the rest of it. But actually, sometimes, and if you look at the the, the recent Brexit negotiations, for example, which were done, I mean, they were, they were held very, very tightly. I was talking to someone involved with them uh, recently, and he told me that at times there were two civil servants who, who, who saw the full picture of what was going on with the uh, Windsor framework because it had to be held so tightly. And sometimes privacy is needed to do the business of government. Sometimes privacy is needed for outcomes and good outcomes to happen because have Having a running commentary on things isn't 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 helpful. In terms of the WhatsApp messages, that's a sensation. It's a massive scoop for the Telegraph. It's a massive scoop for my colleague Isabel Oakshot, and it will change the way government works. It will change the way people uh, think about the the messages they send. Um, and I, if there is a cabinet minister who hasn't switched on disappearing messages <laughs> on WhatsApp or moved to Signal, I'd be astonished because yeah. I think that actually the net result of that story, even though it's a it's an absolutely belter of a scoop. I think that the net result might be less transparency in mm. government because people will try to communicate in ways which can never be revealed. And that's bad for democracy in the longer term. That is very interesting. Should just note, without wishing to digress too much, um, Isabel Oakshot, of course, your talk TV colleague, not your Telegraph colleague. Uh, that's right. Yes, he's my mm, talk TV colleague. I don't work for the Telegraph. No, notable. And yes, who knew that um, she did until a couple of weeks ago? But there we are. Uh, Kirsty, what do you think on the kind of transparency um, thing? I'm just quite intrigued by it. And what Peter was saying there, that actually the result of all of these WhatsApp messages being published by um, Isabel Oakshot of the Telegraph is just quite intriguing for what happens from here on out. But your claws away. What claws? She's been working for the we're Telegraph for several months, claws, it would Anyway, Kirsty, the transparency issue. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Peter. I think um, I said this last week, all I can see is the net upshot of this is that... Um, Going into hiding. In that people will switch to signal, which is, I think I described it last week, was the grown-ups version of Snapchat, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you pass some messages and then they disappear conveniently after two weeks. Um, and I, you know, and I think that's true. I mean, like, I've always um, uh, tried to live by the maxim that you should never put in print something that, you know, you wouldn't want to see, you know, written out in a newspaper, if you like. But, you know... <sighs> but that's quite tricky, Kirsty, in government, isn't it? 
But but that is quite tricky in government. And, you know, people sometimes need to say things for a variety of reasons or the context of which are completely kind of lost. You might need to, you know, to, to, to big up your, you know, play to the ego of your principal, you know, your, your secretary of state. You might need to, you might be saying something disobliging about somebody else, not because that's how you particularly feel, but you're trying to make, you know, your your principal feel better about a situation. There's a whole range of context around a kind of mm. plain, painful black and white of these WhatsApps that isn't really seen there. Um, but I do come back to the original point about listening to Matt Hancock bleat about betrayal when he's handed over the WhatsApps yes. of, of yeah. friends and colleagues without talking yeah. to them, mm. putting exactly. their careers and their reputations uh, in jeopardy as much as his. I... I find extraordinary, but yeah. um, you know, look. Uh, I said last week, you know, if you if you want to if you want to do things that don't get traced back, you have a face to face conversation. Yeah. You know, you, you don't do it on WhatsApp. You don't do it by email. You know, mm. you you do it offline. One of Kirsty's yeah. mantras on this pod, Peter, is you know to try to sort of help us realise that governing is actually really difficult and getting things done is not plain sailing, basically ever, no. it would seem, Kirsty. Um, what what would you say is your sort of proudest memory as a as a special advisor, Peter? Uh, I think my proudest memory was when we got rough sleeping down. Um, that was something that was an absolute personal mission mm. of my political hero, James Brokenshire, who's sadly no longer with us. And I remember actually... Uh, speaking to uh, Kirsty about this one time, uh, in terms of not just rough sleeping, and was it was brilliant that the policy resulted in that, but also just the relationship I had with James, who's just a brilliant guy. And Kirsty said to me on one occasion, "Look, you know, at the end of the day, your staff. At the end of the day, you know, you might have a really close relationship with this person, get on with them. But at the end of the day, once the relationship ends, and she said the only exception she'd ever seen to seen to it was was James Brokenshire and me, who became a really really good mate. Uh, sadly, he's no longer with." He died of lung cancer, and I was actually shaking a bucket in uh, London Bridge Station for uh, lung cancer research with his lovely wife, Cathy, recently as well. So I think um, I was incredibly lucky in that I just got, was thrust together completely uh, by chance with someone I really, really gelled with. And I think that in working in the Northern Ireland office with him and then in the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, and it was just when, when you have a really good team, I was with Liam Booth-Smith, he's now Rishi Sunak Chief of Staff, and a brilliant civil servant called Jamie Cowling, who was the principal private sector, really, really important um, senior civil servant, and, and James. And kind of just the four of us just worked together really, really well. And I think when it's when it's working, uh, as everyone on this will, will attest, whether it's journalism, politics, whatever, when something really works and when a team works, you can achieve a huge amount. And I was just really privileged every single day to work on that team. That's amazing. Love that. Really love that. I think there's a, a sweet thing here, isn't there, about when you're advising someone very closely. I think often we could people get the impression that Westminster is this sort of very glamorous and glitzy place where everyone's just either drunk or, you know, making laws all the time and that's just what you do. Actually people are only place and sometimes your relationship and I I mean friendship here with your advisor is actually kind of the strongest but most real thing that you have. Because I think a lot of yeah. relationships in Westminster are quite duplicitous you know you never know when you're going to get betrayed or you have transactional watching yeah. back exactly transactional but sometimes you get those rare relationships and it definitely sounds like this is what you had um with james where it's just real and you're just 
friends. You've got each other's backs and you're looking after each other. And it's very genuine. And I think it's very well, hard the, to find. The, 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 one of the funniest moments for me was um, actually I came back to my housemate. One time I'd been working for, for Robert Buckland, the, the Justice Secretary. Yeah, I got on with really well, a really good guy. Um, still get on with him now and so on. And, and uh, he's a good guy and all the rest of it. It wasn't, it wasn't quite the same as James. And I came back to my housemate and she said, you know, you're getting on pretty well with with Robert and you're, you know, you're taking the job as seriously as it needs to be taken. And, you know, you have a good boss to, to employee uh, sort of relationship and so on. And I said, oh, right, was it not like that with James? She said, no, it was, it was, it was more disciple messiah. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> oh, that is great. I really love it. Thank you, Peter. Thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing. That's a really nice um, sort of thought as well, because, you know, even, even with everything, really, it can feel like it's just permanent attacks, left, right and centre, haha, as it were. But um, I think it's so nice to sort of hear that, you know, when you've got a functioning team that are working in the interest of just trying to do good, that actually, you know, that is something we should be very aware of. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Anytime, Tom. That is Peter Cardwell. He's political editor of Talk Radio. He's a former special advisor to four cabinet ministers, and he's the author of The Secret Life of Special Advisors, which is still on sale, Peter. You can buy that. Yeah. It is, paperback. Yeah. It's signed yeah. paperback. Yeah. There you go. Help yourselves. Good stuff. <laughs> uh, Kirsty, Frankie, thank you both very much as well. Great Thank to speak you. to you. Thank you. Um, it's a good episode today. Thank you very much. You can email your thoughts, agree, disagree, questions that you want to ask, takes you want to offer. Uh, the email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. We'd always love to hear from you. While you're online as well, go to the website, whitehallsources.com. Join our mailing list. We promise never to spam you. It's just to keep you up to date with what's going on. And make sure you find us on social media as well. We're on TikTok, we're on Twitter, uh, we're on Instagram too. Just search for Whitehall Sources. Thank you very much for being with us. Make sure you follow and subscribe and we will talk to you next week.